You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. This is the Feast of Dedication, just to get us in the mood. So I said good morning, everyone. I should say, in Hebrew, you would say, Bokotov lekulam, that is good morning, everyone. And then a traditional greeting, and we can all repeat this after me if you want. We can learn some Hebrew letters. In Hebrew, you've probably heard, there's a, a letter called a chet, that is a real guttural sound that it's hard to do without spitting. So please turn to your neighbour and let's say Chag Chanukah Sameach. There's three different hets in there. Chag Chanukah Sameach. Generally you just say Chag Sameach at any holiday. But... And that is basically Happy Holidays or Happy Hanukkah for that one there is how you say that. Now... In case anyone's wondering why are we in a Christian church celebrating a traditional Jewish holiday, which is technically not even a Levitical holiday, it's not actually a holiday that is commanded in the Bible. In fact, the only mention of Hanukkah is actually in the New Testament. So we'll get into that in in a little bit. But why are we doing this? We're not trying to be Jewish, we're not trying to take over any sort of traditions. It's quite simply because it's a wonderful holiday and a wonderful teaching opportunity. It's not commanded in the Bible per se, however, it is prophesied in the Bible. Many of the characters that we're going to talk about are spoken of in the prophecies of Daniel, prophecies of Isaiah speak of this festival, and of course many in the New Testament are the fulfilment of this. So it's a wonderful way to understand the culture and the world of Jesus and the world of the Bible, and you don't really need any more reason than that to be studying something like this. But there is one more reason, it is obviously traditional at this time to eat donuts. In Israel, over 17 million donuts are eaten at this time of year. And next door, we have boxes full of Krispy Kremes for you afterwards. It's traditional to eat donuts because, obviously, they're deep fried in oil. And this is, we'll explain the oil is significant to Hanukkah as we go through. And that's just a tradition that's fun and is built up. And we'll go through that today. And for us, it's also a very good Advent message. As we spoke of just last week in our Advent message, we're we're preparing our hearts for the arrival of the Messiah all those years ago. And it's often said that without Hanukkah, there would be no Christmas, if I could put it like that. And why? Basically, Hanukkah was an attempt to wipe out the Jewish people, an attempt to destroy the uniqueness of, of the Jewish covenant people. And if that succeeded, there would have been no Jewish person to bring the Messiah into the world 100 or so years later. So we're going to look at all of that history today. Now, yes, they always happen at similar times of year. This year, they completely overlap. This tonight, today, is actually the first night of Hanukkah. It's an eight-day festival. And so the last night is Christmas on Christmas. So they overlap completely. However, the most common theme that connects Hanukkah and the Advent season is the theme of light. And this is what we're going to look at today. So Hanukkah is often known as the Festival of Lights. Hanukkah, the Festival of Lights, or the Feast of Dedication, it's sometimes called. It's an eight-day holiday, and every day on that holiday, there will be a candle lighting within the Jewish households across the world. Now, full disclosure to you, we have a big menorah there. It's not actually a Hanukkah menorah, a Hanukkah as they call it. That is, it, w- it would have nine branches. If you remember last year we did one, I, like they're quite hard to get hold of in the UK, of that sort of size. And the one I had, the nine branch one was tiny and you couldn't really see it. So just give me a bit of a license there. We're just using a traditional seven branched menorah. With Hanukkah they'd have nine, one in the middle that is raised above the others. And then you'd have the ones on the side and every day you light one. And then the next day you light two and you light them all again like that as you go through. The middle branch 
on this particular menorah is called the servant candle, the servant branch. And what's interesting about this, and, and Jewish people who believe in Jesus as Messiah, they make a big point of this because the servant candle, one of the titles of Jesus is the servant king. And it's interesting that when they light the candles each day, they don't take matches and light each candle. All they do is they take the match and they light the middle candle, the servant candle, and then they use that candle to light the rest of the candle. So the servant candle gives light to the world is the idea behind that there. So we are going to do the candle lighting ceremony as we do this now. It's traditional to have a female come and light the candles because it was a woman that brought the light of the world, the Messiah, into the world. So I'm going to ask Sarah to come up if she's around. She's been really excited about this. <laughs> and she, she will light, yeah, you can do it like that. You don't have to do it traditionally. Whatever is way is not going to damage it. And there is a traditional blessing, well, it's traditional for Messianic Jewish believers, I'll say that one here, as we say it, as this is going on. So traditionally they would say, Baruch Atah Adonai, Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, Asher Natan Lanu Chagim Chukot Umoedim L'Simcha, Likvod Yeshua HaMashiach Adonainu Olam. And that is, Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the Universe, who has given to us holidays, customs, and seasons for gladness. For the glory of the Lord Yeshua, our Messiah, the light of the world. Amen. Amen. Now, let's get into a little bit of the history here, because the events of Hanukkah are spoken of in the Bible, historically and also prophetically. And they provide some fascinating backdrop to the ministry of Jesus. When we read the Gospels of Jesus Christ, you might not realise, I'm hoping you will after this, much of what you're reading, the interactions between Jesus and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, has this sort of Hanukkah background going on because of the events that happened and how they would have been thinking as a nation at that time. So it's absolutely fascinating. Now, the history of Hanukkah is not found in the Bible. It's found in what we call the apocryphal books of 1 and 2 Maccabees. And these are very, very interesting books that they should really be required reading for any Bible student. And because of that, we're going to read a lot of them this morning. I want to actually just read it to you straight from the book of 1 and 2 Maccabees, the story that we get in Hanukkah. So we want to cast our minds back firstly to the year 333 BC. Alexander the Great, the Greek warrior, had conquered the Medo-Persian Empire and he had established Greek as the dominant empire of the day, and Greek as the dominant language of that time. He was promoting what we call Hellenistic culture. This is Greek customs, Greek philosophy, and everything that goes with that. And the story goes, well, the history goes, as Alexander died young, he left his kingdom to his four generals. And it is at this point where the book of Maccabees begins. So 1 Maccabees, book of 1 Maccabees, chapter 1, chapter verse 10, starts like this. Speaking of the, the generals that have taken over his kingdom. From them came forth a sinful root, Antiochus Epiphanes, son of King Antiochus. He had been a hostage in Rome, and he began to reign in the 137th year of the kingdom of the Greeks. In those days, certain renegades came out from Israel and misled many, saying, Let us go and make a covenant with the nations around us, for since we separated them, many disasters have come upon us. This proposal pleased them, and some of the people eagerly went to the king who authorised them to observe the ordinances of the nations. So they built a gymnasium in Jerusalem according to the customs of the nations and made foreskins for themselves and abandoned the holy covenant. They joined with the nations and sold themselves to do evil. 
So this is the scene here. You have this man, Antiochus Epiphanes. We spoke about him recently a lot going through our Revelation studies. He is a type of what we call the Antichrist, this figure that we will see in the last days, the things he did. He's prophesied in the book of Daniel many times. And the name there, Epiphanes, means God manifest. Tells you about this sort of man. He believed he really was a God-like figure. And this is very interesting for us as we're in Advent season because we are celebrating, obviously, the Messiah, who one of his names was Emmanuel, which means God with us. So remember, as we went through Revelation, we always said, Satan always tries to counterfeit the, the original. You have a man here proclaiming himself God, and then you have Messiah, God with us, at that time. These two things playing off one another. However, the Jews gave him another nickname, Antiochus Epimanes, which means the mad one, because this man was a despot, the true meaning of the term, and he was vicious and cruel, and we'll, we'll read some of what he did. And it was really under his reign that Greek culture was now being enforced violently upon people. And one of his goals was to completely remove the Jewish people from his kingdom. Let's pick it up again in 1 Maccabees, verse 20. After subduing Egypt, Antiochus turned back in the 143rd year and went up against Israel and came to Jerusalem with a strong force. He arrogantly entered the sanctuary and took the golden altar, the lampstand for the light, and all its utensils. He took also the table for the bread of the presence, the cups for drink offerings, the bowls, the golden censers, the curtain, the crowns, and the gold decoration on front of the temple. He stripped it all off. He took the silver and the gold and the costly vessels. He took also the hidden treasures that he found. Taking them all, he went into his own land. He shed much blood and spoke with great arrogance. Israel mourned deeply in every community. Rulers and elders groaned. Young women and young men became faint. The beauty of women faded. Every bridegroom took up the lament. She, she who sat in the bridal chamber was mourning. Even the land trembled for its inhabitants, and all the house of Jacob was clothed with shame. Two years later, the king sent to the cities of Judah a chief collector of tribute. Now, understand this background. This will tell you why, when we read the Gospels, there was such animosity towards Jewish people who became tax collectors for the Roman government. This is the same sort of thing that was going, going on here. He, he sent uh, Judah a chief collector of tribute, and he came to Jerusalem with a large force, and deceitfully he spoke peaceable words to them, and they believed him. But he suddenly fell upon the city, dealt it a severe blow, and destroyed many people of Israel. He plundered the city, burned it with fire, and tore down its houses and its surrounding walls, and took the captive, the women and children, and seized all their livestock. Then the king wrote to his whole kingdom that all should be one people, and that all should give up their particular customs. All the nations accepted the command of the king. Many, even from Israel, gladly adopted this religion. They sacrificed to idols, profaned the Sabbath, and the king sent letters by messengers to Jerusalem and to the towns of Judah. He directed them to follow customs strange to the land, to forbid burnt offerings and sacrifices and drink offerings in the sanctuary, to profane the Sabbaths and the festivals, to defile the sanctuary and the holy ones, to build altars and sacred precincts and shrines for idols, to sacrifice pigs and other unclean animals, and to leave their sons uncircumcised. They were to make themselves abominable by everything unclean and profane, so that they would forget the law and change all the ordinances. He added, and whoever does not obey the command of the king shall die. So you see what's going on here. This is a Greek king uh, imposing laws that ultimately would not allow the children of Israel to obey the laws of God. And this you see here, the spiritual battle beginning. 
51, in such words he wrote to his whole kingdom. He appointed, uh, he appointed inspectors over all the people and commanded the towns of Judah to offer sacrifice town by town. And you can understand what this must have done. We see similar, th- you know, he, he had his people around the towns checking if everyone was obeying his laws. If anyone was secretly hiding and obeying the Torah at this time, then the secret police almost would come and get them. We see this sort of thing. Verse 52, many of the people... Everyone who forsook the law joined them, and they did evil in the land. They drove Israel into hiding in every place of refuge they had. And interestingly, if you saw the news recently, this narrative of many of the the Jews at this time fleeing to the hills, what they would often do is they would hide a lot of their possessions in caves. It was very common in that area. And just last week, actually, they found a little box in Israel in archaeological excavations that contained a little jar full of coins that are from this exact period. It's about, you know, it's about two months' worth of wages, a lot of money, and most people pre- presume, archaeologists, that this was from one of those Jews who was fleeing the persecutions of Antiochus at this time. He hid all of his possessions in the cave. And what I love about that is that all these caves in the, de- in this, the wilderness of Judea, even to this day, are still turning out treasures that confirm the history of Israel all this time. And that brings many of the modern narratives that we see on the news into question today. This is going back thousands of years. But that was just recently. Verse 54. Now on the 50, 15th day of Kislev, in the 145th year, they erected a desolating sacrilege on the altar of burnt offering. Now, in, uh, that desolating sacrilege could also be translated an abomination of desolation. You remember Daniel prophesied that, that that was to come. We spoke of this in Revelation. Jesus referenced that, and he said one day this will happen again in the end times under this future world ruler. This is all very biblical. They also built altars in the surrounding towns of Judah and offered incense at the doors of the houses and in the streets. The books of the law that they found, the Bibles, they tore to pieces and burned with fire. Anyone found possessing the book of the covenant or anyone who adhered to the law was condemned to death by decree of the king. They kept using violence against Israel, against those who were found month after month in the towns. And on the 25th day of the month, notice that date again. Remember we talked about it last week. The 25th day of the month, they offered sacrifice on the altar. That was on top of the altar of burnt offering. That is the abomination there. According to the decree, they put to death the women who had their children circumcised and their families and those who circumcised them, and they hung the infants from their mother's necks. Now notice, this is, this is what Antiochus was doing in history here. And this event, again, is said to have occurred on the 25th of Kislev, which would roughly be December here. However, this was really the last straw. This is how bad it had got, and then we see the revolution beginning. As we read there, Antiochus was sending out his representatives to all the small towns of Judah, setting up these altars, and then forcing the people to come and worship to them. Very prophetic of what we read in Revelation 2, if you see this. However, in one of these cities, Moadin, there was a priest called Mattathias, and he had five sons, one of whom was named Judas, Judas Maccabeus, Judas the Hammer, as he was known later. Let's pick it up in 1 Maccabees chapter 2 now, verse 15. The king's officers, who were enforcing the apostasy, came to the town of Moadin to make them offer sacrifice. And many from Israel came to them, and Matthias and his sons were assembled. And then the king's officers spoke to Matthias as follows, You are a leader, honoured and great in this town, and supported by the sons and brothers. 
Now be the first to come and do what the king commands, as all the nations and the people of Judah and those who are left in Jerusalem have done. Then you and your sons will be numbered among the friends of the king, and you and your sons will be honoured with silver, gold and many gifts. You see see what's what's happening here. He acknowledges that this man Matthias is a faithful man. He knows he's going to be troubled, so he goes to him first and he offers him everything. Very familiar, we saw Satan bring Jesus out to the wilderness and offered him all the kingdoms of the world if you only would just bow down and worship me. That's basically, again, what is going on here as we see this. But Matthias answered and said in a loud voice, even if all the nations that live under the rule of the king obey him and have chosen to obey his commandments, every one of them abandoning the religion of their ancestors, I and my sons and my brothers will continue to live by the covenant of our ancestors. Far be it from us to desert the law and the ordinances. We will not obey the king's words by turning aside from our religion to the right hand or to the left. And when he had finished speaking these words, a Jew came forward in sight of all to offer sacrifice on the altar in Moedim according to the king's command. And when Matthias saw it, he burned with zeal and his heart was stirred and he gave vent to righteous anger. He ran and slaughtered him on the altar And the time came, and at the same time he killed the king's officer who was forcing them to sacrifice, and he tore down that altar. And thus he burned with zeal for the law, just as Phinehas did against Zimri the son of Salu. And then Matthias cried out in the town with a loud voice, saying, Let everyone who is zealous for the law and supports the covenant come with me. Then he and his sons fled for the hills and left all that they had in that town. So this was the revolution that begun. These words inspired the rebellion, the Maccabean revolt, as we, uh, as we call it here. Matthias and his sons fled to the mountains. That war cry that he gave there, everyone who was zealous for the law, everyone who was faithful to Israel at that time, they fled with him to the hills and slowly living in the caves and amongst the wilderness of Judea, people went to them and they gathered numbers and grew their forces and they basically engaged in what we would call today like guerrilla warfare throughout this time. Matthias died a year later and he handed over the reins of this revolt to his son, Judas. Judas the Maccabee, Yehuda HaMaccabi, basically meaning the hammer. He was a good warrior. He led this army in warfare against the Syrians and against uh, the Greeks at this time. Many victories until finally Antiochus was so fed up with this, he sent 40,000 troops against the Maccabees, well well outnumbering them, expecting them to be wiped out to crush this rebellion. And miraculously, though, these rebels overthrew this massive Syrian force and they won at the Battle of Emmanuel. And uh, three years later to the day that that little riot started in the town of Moadin, and again on the 25th of Kislev, again, very significant this date. You can see why the early church had this date in their mind. The 25th of Kislev was the day that they retook Jerusalem and they rededicated the temple there. I'll read it to you now from 2 Maccabees. Now Maccabeus and his followers, the Lord leading them on, recovered the temple and the city. They tore down the altars that had been built in the public square by the foreigners and also destroyed the sacred precincts. They purified the sanctuary and made another altar of sacrifice. Then, striking fire out of flint, they offered sacrifices after a lapse of two years and they offered incense and lighted lamps and set out the bread of the presence. And when they had done this, they fell prostrate and implored the Lord that they might never again fall into such misfortunes, but that if they should ever sin, they might be disciplined by him with forbearance and not be handed over to blasphemous and barbarous nations. It happened that on that same day, on which the sanctuary had been profaned by the foreigners, the purification of the sanctuary took place, 
that is, on the 25th day of the same month, which was Kislev, they celebrated it for eight days with rejoicing in the manner of the festival of booths. That's very significant. Remembering how not long before, during the festival of booths, they had been wandering in the mountains and caves like wild animals, therefore carrying ivy-wreathed wands and beautiful branches and also palm fronds, they offered hymns of thanksgiving to him who had given success to the purifying of his own holy place, and they decreed by public edict, ratified by vote, that the whole nation of the Jews should observe these days every year. Such then was the end of Antiochus, who was called Epiphanes." So that's the history of why you celebrate Hanukkah. And it has some very good lessons today about the pressure from the culture to assimilate, about abandoning your faith and joining the vast mass of humanity who are all doing another thing and following Antiochus or whoever it may be, who is a picture of that final leader who will come in rebellion. The Maccabean Rebellion is really about the preservation of God's people, the importance of God's covenant and his word. And like we said, without it, there would be no Christmas because the Christmas is the birth of a very specific Jewish child. It is about resisting compromise and ultimately, as we see here, about dedicating ourselves to God and the triumph of light over darkness. In the days of Antiochus, Hellenism was forced upon the people. However, it wasn't violently forced in the early days. It was accepted by the people because it was given to them in the form of entertainment, in the form of lavish games, in the forms of philosophy, in the forms of sexual uh, activity, in the forms of blood sports and wrestling, the nude Olympic Games and all these sorts of things were, were prized. The body was worshipped in ancient Greece. And these things were accepted by the people. However, there were those among them that did not compromise, people like Matthias and his sons, these faithful priests. However, there were those in the Jewish nation who did compromise. They accepted everything that Antiochus gave them. They began to hate the ways of their fathers. One particular custom, as, you, as we read a few times there, was singled out. That was circumcision. And it's singled out for a reason. The Greeks considered circ circumcision to be an abomination because the Greeks worshipped the body in that respect. And what this meant at that time, as I think I've probably explained this to you before, those Jews who wanted to assimilate, become part of Greek culture and just involve themselves in everything, they had no regard for the God of Israel, which was common at the time, but they wanted to assimilate, they could never fully assimilate because they couldn't take part in a lot of the Olympics and a lot of the games because their circumcision without them, you see, as a son of the covenant. It's the very point that God gave it to them at that point. So they could never be fully accepted. They could never fully assimilate. There was always that reminder there that they were part of the covenant people. And this is exactly the purpose it was supposed to have. I find that very interesting. And jump forward to the 20, 20th century. It reminds me of when you hear stories of the, the, the SS. This is, again, quite often how they would identify whether someone was a Jew or not through that sign of the covenant. It's, it's tragic. And in the New Testament, even in the Old Testament, God writes, what was circumcision? A sign of the covenant. But what was the real point of circumcision? You were supposed to have a circumcised heart too. It was a sign of your faith. This is what it says in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. A circumcised heart was a heart of faith. And this is what the whole point. You see here playing out in the physical. Antiochus, the Greeks, trying to get the Jewish people to come and assimilate. And it was their sign of faith, the covenant that was stopping them from doing that. 
This is exactly the same as it should be today for all people who believe in the Messiah who have that circumcised heart that we should not be able to assimilate with that culture in many ways because we are sons of the covenant. It's this, this is the issue here. Now, many people want to assimilate, enjoy its fruits, enjoy the guise of all these things that go on. But remember, what is really at stake here, what Satan is really after when he does that, is your faith. He wants to destroy that because he is standing against the God of Israel. If you do compromise, where will it lead? It will lead to Antiochus. There's always an Antiochus waiting in the wings. What did he do? Think about it. He banned Torah, the Bible. He banned the reading of the Bible in their services, in their synagogues, at their funerals. He banned their festivals, which were carried out in obedience to God's word. He banned circumcision. He desecrated the temple. And then this led to outright persecution. He started just destroying the covenant people altogether. And this is a lesson for us, because very easily these things are not presented to us in the way that Matthias was given at Moedin. There's an altar, sacrifice on it or die. It does lead to that eventually, but it doesn't start like that usually. It starts many, many, in many more simple ways before that. Come and enjoy this. Come to, it just, it's, it's a slowly step-by-step thing. And this is a danger because even in the Christian world, we have that expression, you know, you've probably heard pastors say it, you have one foot in the world, one foot in the church, and you think you can live like that, going on like that. This is exactly what the Jewish people thought at this time too. But where does that lead? It leads eventually to an Antiochus. The world always gets you when you're like that because you are subtly seduced and drawn away from the covenant at this time. Sooner or later, an Antiochus will come and then you'll have that choice like Matthias in Moedin. You have to make a decision. The lines at a certain point will be very clearly drawn. In the early stages, it's harder to tell where the line is. It's okay, we can just do that, that's fine. We still go to church, we still do this, we're still worshipping the Lord. Track that a few years into the future. At some point, the line will become very definite. And I think in history, we're at a point where the lines are becoming very definite for the church now on certain things. People are going to have to start making choices. Are you going to go like Matthias and stand faithful to the Lord? Or are you going to just assimilate and be happy with everything that Antiochus will offer you? Ultimately, remember, what is at stake is your faith, which is based on the word of God. Now, ultimately, that is the background, some application there, but let's go to the New Testament now and make the connection. We read there, remember, in that little period, sorry, that second bit of Second Maccabees, where it talked about celebrating for eight days. And in Jewish tradition, they have this miracle that when they took over the temple, they found only one quart of oil for the menorah, and they, they said, we have to use it. And that oil lasted for eight days. You might have heard that, that, that story there. And they said, that's what they celebrate at Hanukkah with this. However, that's a much later Jewish tradition. That didn't come actually until, five, until 500 AD, to 500 years after Christ. It's in one Talmudic tract. The real reason they celebrate for eight days is what we just read in 2 Maccabees. Because they considered it a late celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles, which was the seven, eight day festival there. You see, and they even mention that in the text. And this is very significant, and we'll, we'll come back to this. But for now, let's look at a few of these light prophecies about the festival of light from the Old Testament, and then we'll see how this impacts the New Testament. So turn with me, please, to Isaiah chapter 60. We'll see. And the rabbis even saw, the ancient tradition was, that the Hanukkah light was the light of Messiah. 
In the beginning in the book of Genesis, when it says, before God says, let there be light, there was the light of God. And they say this is the same thing. And again, we've seen that in the book of Revelation that we just studied in the future eternal state. Light will be no sun because the light of the Lord will be there. But Isaiah 63 says this, verses 1 to 3. Arise, shine, for your light has come. The glory of Adonai has risen on you. For behold, darkness covers the earth, deep darkness the peoples, but Adonai will rise upon you and his glory will appear over you. Nations will come to your light, kings to the brilliance of your rising. This is Isaiah. This is the Old Testament prophet here. And he is giving a glimpse in this prophecy about the future of the city of Zion when it is ruled by this messianic king that they were expecting, this messianic king who had been promised through all their prophets of old. Notice the themes of light and darkness in that particular text. However, to understand this prophecy, this future that Isaiah is giving the people, you have to understand where they were. So turn back to Isaiah chapter 59. This sets the context for the prophecy. And all these things are related. Isaiah 59 verse 2 tells us why they are in darkness. It says, but your iniquities, your sin, have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Now think of Jesus debating with the Pharisees, where he says to them, just because you're Jewish, that doesn't mean you're automatically going to go to heaven. Think about what Isaiah, right, even back in Isaiah's day, God was saying to them, just because you're Jewish, you're not getting through. You have to confess and repent your sin. Your sins have caused a separation between you and God. And this is from Isaiah, not from the New Testament. This is Isaiah's words. In verse 9 of chapter 59, he then describes their darkness. Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, but behold, darkness. For brightness, but we walk in gloom. Or your translation might say, we walk in darkness. Note that phrase there, please, in Isaiah. It's very significant. We walk in darkness. Verse 10, we grope along the wall like blind men. We grope like those who have no eyes. Verse 11, we hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. And then go down to verse 20 and look at the final promise of this section. A redeemer will come to Zion. And to those who turn from transgression in Jacob delivers the Lord. So you see here the state of Israel, the nation. Darkness, walking away from the Lord. Their sins have caused this separation. They're hoping and longing for salvation, for light, for justice. And then he promises that will come from a redeemer who will come to Zion. And then we move back into the verse 60 that we see. And from this redeemer, the light of the glory of the Lord will go out to all the nations who will stream up to him under his reign in Jerusalem. But notice these themes, light and hope, blindness and darkness, having no eyes, all of it connected with sin. And finally, the redeemer, the one who overturns this. The redeemer from Zion is what they would refer to as the Mashiach, the Messiah, the one who will bring salvation, the one who will reconcile them to God, the one who will shine the light of the glory of God from Israel to the nations in his kingdom. And this is all very significant. All of this is Old Testament. Now let's jump to the New Testament. So this is the first century AD, because the things are amazing. I want you to look at the way that Yeshua, that Jesus is presented as we see him. And we spoke about this on Wednesday nights a little while ago. When Yeshua is born, the baby Jesus, he is brought to the temple to be dedicated in accordance with the Lord Joseph and Mary, which were faithful Jewish people, they brought him to the temple. And in the temple, we see this righteous man, Simeon. It says that this man is waiting for the consolation of Israel. He's a faithful one. He's like Matthias. He, he's obeying the law at this time. 
And he was given a word that he would not die until he had seen the Redeemer who would come from Zion, of Isaiah. And he sees Joseph and Mary bring Jesus into the temple here, and he knows this is it. And he's given baby Jesus, and he holds him, and he says, Now may you let your servant go in peace, O sovereign master, according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the nations and the glory of your people Israel. You see, Jesus is said here to be God's salvation, which you remember is the very meaning of the name Yeshua, Yahweh saves, God saves. It says here that he is a light of revelation to the nations. Where's that verse from? That's from Isaiah chapter 60. That's a quote from the book of Isaiah that we just read there, pointing you back to show you that Jesus here, Yeshua, is being held out as the fulfilment of those prophecies, as the Redeemer who will come from Zion. It's very, very significant, all of this. The baby here is held out as the Messiah, the fulfilment of the light prophecy that would come from Isaiah. That's when he was, be that's when he was a, a child. Now let's jump forward 30 years to when he was an adult and see how he uses this in his teaching. He goes into Jerusalem. And when does he do this? He does this at the Feast of Tabernacles, the season of light, as it's often called. The Feast of Tabernacles points us towards the Messianic Kingdom. It's the feast that will be celebrated in the Messianic Kingdom, according to the prophecies of Zechariah. And remember, as we've just established, Hanukkah was a late celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles. So these things are connected together like that. Jesus has been teaching around Israel at this time. There is heightened messianic fervour in Israel at this time because there is messianic activity. He is going around claiming to be the Messiah. There are miracles happening that are fulfilling these prophecies at the time. And remember, this is the time, the season of light. It's around Hanukkah, leading up to Hanukkah at this period. Many Jewish people are thinking the way they understood the Messiah will come like Judas the Maccabee. He will come and throw off the Romans just like Judas threw off the Greeks, rededicate the temple and do all these things. That's the mindset. All of these thoughts are going around. This is why you have, think of Simon the Zealot. What was a zealot? It was basically someone trying to continue what the Maccabees started. And Jesus brought these people into his disciples. All of these things are going around in the background to your Gospels here at this time. When Jesus went into the temple and he overturned the temple during his ministry, many Jewish people would have seen that. This is it. This is the same as uh, slaying the priest in Moedin. This is it. The revolution is starting. The Messiah is here and he's going to set up his kingdom. Now, they were mistaken about the timing. We understand that. But this is the mindset of what they would have had going on in their heads at this time. Because Jesus does say he does that because of zeal for his father's house. Just like Matthias said, it was his zeal that made him go and do that to the priests. And you see, this is the background. This is what every Jew would have been thinking at this time. And we get to John chapter 7. Turn to John chapter 7. Many at the feast at this time were debating, is Yeshua the Messiah? There was expectation, there was anticipation, there was dispute and everything going on. John chapter 7, verse 40. Some of the people there, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, this certainly is the prophet. Others were saying, this is the Messiah. Still others were saying, surely the Messiah is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Has not the scripture said that Christ comes from the descendant of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So division occurred in the crowd because of him. He was right. He did have to come from Bethlehem. We have that story. We celebrate it at Advent, don't we? This is the point. But this was all what was understood in the Jewish world at this time. 
That's John chapter 7. And then it moves on. The narrative of John is carefully constructed around all of this. Then look at John 8. What is happening at John 8? It's the festival of Sukkot, tabernacles. Remember, again, Hanukkah, a late celebration of tabernacles. The focus of them both is light. And during Sukkot, in the temple precinct in Israel at this time, they would have the lamp lighting ceremony. They would have these four massive 75-foot menorahs like this, replicating the one inside the temple, and they would light them in the courtyard every evening. And the idea was that they would be so bright, Josephus records that the light from these menorahs, you could see it around all, you could see Jerusalem around all of Israel. It was so bright. That's the point there going on at this time. It is no coincidence that it is at this time of year that Yeshua, that Jesus went to the temple and he did these things and he made that amazing proclamation where he said to the Jewish people at this time, I am the light of the world. And then he goes on, and look, we, don't, we miss this. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. Think back to that passage I just read you in Isaiah. What was the problem in Isaiah 59, verse 2? They were walking in darkness, it said. He is referencing that, that passage here. The Jewish people would have picked up on that at this time. We miss this, but that's what he's saying in here. He's now saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but you will have the light of life. It couldn't really be a more Jewish expectation of Messiah there to say something like that. They hoped for salvation, it said in Isaiah, but he was far, they was far from them then. They hoped for light, but behold, they were walking in darkness. Now, the fulfilment of these prophecies is in their midst. The Messiah is here proclaiming to them that the light of the world has come. The Messianic King is here. Darkness no longer needs to be with you. This would have had an amazing impact standing under the light of these massive menorahs during the season of light. John, like I said, is carefully crafted around this. Now look, follow this. This is fascinating. What else did Isaiah, Isaiah prophesy? Right after he said, as we read it, that they walk in darkness, it said in Isaiah 59 verse 10, we grope along the wall like blind men, we grope like those who have no eyes. Blindness. So right after Jesus makes the pronouncement, I am the light of the world, where does the narrative go in the Gospel of John? What's the next episode we have? Turn over to John chapter 9. What do you have? The story of Jesus healing the blind man. We see there's no coincidence there that, that this is happening. And John, he does this. He heals the blind man and he uses that as a way to display the works of God. And again, proclaiming himself as the fulfilment. In John 9, verses 4 to 5, he says, We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work, but while I'm in the world, the light I am, the light of the world. And this event, this healing here, this curing the blindness, becomes the catalyst for Yeshua to declare himself as the divine son of man that was prophesied by the prophet Daniel all those years ago. John chapter 9, verse 35, he says, Jesus heard that they had put him out, the, the man that he had healed. And finding him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Very significant title there. That's, that's Daniel's prophecy of the divine Son of Man that we get in the book of Daniel. And he answered, who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him there. Now remember, you see Jesus here, the deity of Christ, he accepted worship, he knew that he was God. Jewish people would not worship anyone but God. This is the whole point. And Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world so that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. Again, this whole theme of blindness and, and spiritual awakening there. So that's John chapter 9. And then turn over to John chapter 10. We see Jesus now in Jerusalem. 
And we see him now at the Feast of Hanukkah. Any time Hanukkah is ever mentioned in the Bible, it's here right now, after all of this carefully constructed narrative. John chapter 10, verse 22. It says, At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem, and it was winter. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. And so the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. You see, you can see the sort of thought that was going on in their head. And Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Now, this is, again, fascinating with the background here. In the temple, the, the priests who run the temple were the Sadducees. The Pharisees were the more popular priesthood. They had the bigger people following. But the actual temple stuff was generally run by the Sadducees. The Sadducees were descendants of a group of people called the Hasmoneans. The Hasmoneans were descendants of the Maccabees. You see, this chain here of direct people. So he's making very pointed expressions to them here. Because at this time, the Sadducees was, had sold out. They were selling the priesthood. They were in league with the Roman government. They were doing exactly what the apostate Jews had done in the days of the Maccabees. It's the same thing. And Jesus is playing on this history here with them in these statements going on. It's, it's a very skillful way that he's doing this. And basically, they're asking. You see this thing. If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. This is the people asking. You see, they were looking for another Judas of Maccabee. They were looking for someone to overthrow the Romans at this time, to, to give them power over the temple again, just like Judah did. And they, say, they, they thought the Messiah would be the one to do this. And they're saying, if you're him, just tell us. If This is Hanukkah in their minds here. But then Jesus, again, one day he will do various things like that. We studied that in the book of Revelation. That's what that whole book is about. But there was something else he had to do here first. He had to deal with that issue in Isaiah. Your sins have caused a separation between you and God. He had to die as the Passover lamb, making a way for people to be forgiven for their sins before he could do all of that other stuff. But he makes this phrase, I and the Father are one. And then immediately they try to stone him because they understood he was making a claim to deity there. But the way he does it, again, there's, there's Hanukkah background to this. One of the war cries of the Maccabeans when they would go into battle against the Greeks, they would shout the Shema. Shema Yisrael Adonai Rahenu Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. The Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And it's the same thing that he's doing there. That was the cry, the, the oneness of God, the Echad of God. And Jesus is now saying, I and the Father are one. And that's why it got them so much, because they understood kind of what, what he was saying here, and immediately they said blasphemy, and they picked up stones to stone him. That's the ones who had already rejected the Messiah at this time. If you read the narrative, there were many who did accept him at this time. Here we have is Jesus coming. He's claiming to be not only the light of the world, he's claiming to be the true shepherd of Israel, fulfilling those prophecies. He's claiming to be the divine son, fulfilling Daniel's prophecies, and now he's claiming to be one with the Father. This is an amazing uh, announcement that he's making here, and he's doing it all at the Feast of Tabernacles and the Feast of Hanukkah, all of these things going on. And this is why we say the birth of Christ is connected to Hanukkah. The light of the world is Jesus. He revealed that to them during the Festival of Tabernacles. His name is Emmanuel, 
That was what the angel said, you shall call him. That means God with us. That's why he can say, I'm the son of the divine son of Daniel. The incarnation, as we call it, what we focus on during Christmas, is really, again, a very Jewish thing we're thinking of here. It's the fulfillment of all of these prophecies that we're looking at. And John presents it to us in that way. If you read the beginning of John's Gospel, that talks about the incarnation, basically, God God coming to this earth. How does it describe it? It uses the themes of light. John 1, verse 4, In him was life, speaking of Jesus, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. That's Isaiah language he's using there. And the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness, John the Baptist, to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. And you see there the mission of the Messiah, that all might come to faith in the Messiah and be saved. It says he was not the light, John it's referring to, but he came to bear witness about the light. John the Baptist's mission was to prepare the way for the Messiah. And then finally he finishes, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. And that was Messiah, the Redeemer who would come from Zion the long-awaited Messiah of years of anticipation and prophecy coming to fruition at this time, revealing himself as the fulfilment during Tabernacles and during Hanukkah. So with this Hanukkah Advent season, let's make sure that we do focus on Yeshua as the light of the world, as God's salvation, as the Redeemer come from Zion, as the glory of Israel, as the true shepherd, as the Emmanuel, as the divine Son of Man, as he held himself out to be. And interestingly, Daniel, when he's speaking of the divine son of man, a few chapters later, he gives you a a timetable for this prophecy. And he says that this one, this Messiah who has to come, would have to come to this earth before the temple is destroyed. As the prophet Daniel says that. Before the year 70 AD, he says, the one who is going to fulfill all of this has to be on this earth. That means no one else can fulfill that. Every religion that started after that, fails to fulfill these prophecies. Only one person who was born in Bethlehem fulfilled that. Only one person as the shepherd of Israel, as the light of the world, was around on this earth at that time to fulfill those prophecies, and that was Yeshua. That was Jesus Christ. Yeshua, the Messiah. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Amen. You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash theologyandapologetics. If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.